we'll read the whole of the psalm tonight, though we'll be focusing more so on the second half of it this evening. We'll read it, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study it together. Psalm 51. This is God's holy word. Once again, dear friends, take care how you hear it. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its truth on every one of our hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we so very much need your word, and we so desperately need to hear from you. And so as these pages of scripture are open before us tonight. Would you open our minds, open our hearts to receive the word of truth. Give us insight and illumination into the sacred scripture tonight by the ministry of you, God the Holy Spirit. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may remember last time, if you were here with us last Lord's Day evening in Psalm 51, we said that the psalm fell nicely into two sections, verses 1 through 9 and then verses 10 to 19. There's a very natural distinction there, as one commentator pointed out, and that's where we have focused our two sermons. Last week, verses 1 through 9, and tonight, verses 10 through 19. Now, in verses 1 through 9, we saw that fundamentally, 
David was crying out to God for pardon, for pardon, for forgiveness. Remember, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has conspired to have Uriah, her husband, effectively murdered. Nathan the prophet has confronted David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, exposed his sin. David, thou art the man, Nathan says to him. And so now David has come fleeing to God, aware of how desperately he needs forgiveness. He comes seeking mercy. We noted David crying for mercy, confessing his sin, owning his sin, and expressing his utter confidence in God's provision. He knew that an atoning sacrifice for sin would be provided by God to cleanse and forgive him. He knew that's what the sacrificial in the system in the temple pointed toward, and that it points forward, of course, to the once-for-all atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's David's cry for pardon. Tonight, we're going to look at the second portion of the psalm, verses 10 through 19, a cry for purity, a cry for purity. See, David knows he needs to be pardoned before the holy judgment seat of God, but he knows that he also needs more than that. He also needs inner cleansing, renewal. He needs God to change him inside out. That's the thrust of verses 10 through 19. I was reading, well, a number of different commentaries on this passage, and several of them took a similar approach, and I could not improve upon those outlines, so I thought we would follow a similar outline tonight. As David prays for cleansing and change, his prayer takes on three directions, inward, outward, and Godward. First, in verses 10 through 12, David's prayer has an inward focus. Its subject is David's heart. And then verses 13 to 15, his focus is outward. He prays regarding his witness to others. And then in verses 17 through 19, there is an an upward or a Godward focus. This time he's thinking about worship. Inward, outward, and Godward. We'll think about it along those three lines this evening. So first... Let's look at verses 10 through 12, the inward focus of David's prayer. Now, up to this point in the psalm, David has been asking forgiveness for sin which he committed, his legal transgression. But as you may remember from last time, there's a root cause, a root cause that has driven his transgressions. He sins because he's a sinner. Remember the example we gave of my sorry excuse for a dog? In theory, my hound dog chases rabbits, but it is not his rabbit chasing which makes him a dog. Rather, because he is a dog, he has an instinct to chase rabbits. It's part of his DNA, his dogness, if you like, that drives him to chase rabbits. I may enjoy chasing rabbits myself. I may even join Max from time to time in chasing rabbits, but no matter how often I chase rabbits, it will never make me a dog. Not all who chase rabbits are dogs. The activity does not make you a dog. Well, likewise, we sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. David sins because his DNA, his fallen nature, is hardwired to do so. His heart is dispositionally bent toward committing sins and wickedness because he's born with a fallen nature which he inherited from his original father, our first father, Adam. His transgressions are a problem, yes, but David knows that there is something rotten 
at his core that needs addressing. That mere behavior modification will never suffice. He focuses, do you see, on his own heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If I can use a bit of a medical analogy, David cannot simply adjust his lifestyle to produce the change that he needs. He cannot merely go on a diet to lower his cholesterol. He can't cut out McDonald's and Burger King from his weekly dietary habits. Diet and exercise won't do the trick to fix his malady. No, David and you and I stand in need not merely of lifestyle adjustments, but of a total heart transplant. David knows that natively he's got a rotten heart of stone and it is killing him. This native, fallen, outside of Christ human heart drives him to do evil and to love evil and it is exercising a slavish ministry of death over him. And so he comes crying, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now the word that he uses there, create, is important. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's the same word Moses uses in Genesis chapter 1 for God's creation of all things of nothing in the space of six days. It's the word that the Old Testament employs when it speaks of the royal creator, the, the sovereign and majestic one enthroned on high when he, by divine fiat, speaks and commands all things into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, be light. And light was. That's what David is asking for here. A few years ago, we were in the Morris household. We were upgrading and replacing our old kitchen cabinets in our previous home. And as you all well know, new cabinets are incredibly, incredibly expensive. Oftentimes, homeowners, before they put their house up on the market in an effort to spruce up the home, they don't want to spend the thousands of dollars that's required to rip out and install new cabinets, so what they'll do is give it a fresh coat of paint. It brightens up the whole room, and suddenly that dull brown oak from 1983 is given new life, and it seems as if there's a whole new bright white kitchen in place suddenly, very modern, very chic. David is asking for none of that. A mere facade layer, a coat of new paint to cover up the blemishes beneath, to give it the appearance of newness without actually being new. No, no, David wants to rip out the old cabinetry and gut the whole room. One commentator said he's asking for God to do a work in his heart tantamount to the work of creation that God performed at the dawn of time. God, you created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. At the word of your power, God, create a new heart in me. That's what I need. Isn't that precisely what happens when we come to Christ, brothers and sisters? When we were dead in trespasses and sins, he takes away our hearts of stone and he gives us hearts of flesh. It's an act of free grace and sovereign creation, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. And so, my friends, we must remember the fundamental question is not about our behavior, though that is important, but fundamentally, it's about our essential existence. Do I have a new heart? That's the question. But what about the rest of us? 
You say, well, that's fine for non-believers who might be hearing this message, aren't sure where they stand with Christ. But what about those of us who've been Christians for a while, for a long time? Is this only a prayer for new conversion? I'm persuaded that create in me a clean heart is a prayer for every believer of every degree of maturity for every day. We are ever looking to the Holy Spirit to give us cleansing, to overthrow the remaining sin within us. We are ever looking to the Holy Spirit for grace and power to help us mortify that old man of sin, to better live unto Christ. Friends, every week we come to our morning worship services and we confess our sin together, don't we? And those corporate confessions of sin. We often do so again in our evening services with the minister leading in our evening prayer, confessing our failings and shortcomings and our ongoing transgressions against a holy God. Does it grieve us that our hearts are still so given over to selfishness, to lust and pride and greed and idolatry? Well, we must sit under the preaching of the word. We must seek the fellowship of the saints and hold one another accountable. We must avail ourselves of the means of grace. But let us not lose sight of the reality that to effectively slay sin, we must give ourselves over to the power and help of God, the Holy Spirit. We must cry out with David, Lord God, today I need a clean heart. Create it within me and renew a right spirit within me. Help me, O Lord, to mortify these, that wretched old man of sin that still rears his ugly head. Help me, help me, Lord, to mortify this sin. But then notice that David's made a positive plea in verse 10. But then he prays the same idea again. He, he recapitulates the same idea, but this time in the negative, verse 11. Created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, recapitulates. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now this is a verse that has troubled some Christians. Does it mean that if we sin enough and if we sin too grievously that God will take away the Holy Spirit from us and therefore effectively withdraw our salvation? Can God take back our salvation from us? You've sinned, and you've kept on sinning, and you won't stop, and now you've blown it. You've squandered it. I'm done with you. No. We know from the comprehensive testimony of Scripture that that cannot be what it means. Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, perhaps it's referring to David's kingship. In the same way that the Holy Spirit was once upon Saul, even though Saul, by all accounts, appears to never have been converted, the Holy Spirit was eventually taken away from him. Now, how can an unregenerate man have the Holy Spirit? Well, in the Old Testament context of the kingdom of Israel, it appears that the Spirit for Saul was an anointing of kingship, and he sinned. And he lost it, and it was taken away from him. The the spirit mantle of the privilege of being king of Israel, it was taken away from him, and that mantle was given to David. And now David fears the same thing may happen to him. His grievous sin may have cost him the kingship. And I think that that is a legitimate interpretation here. I think that is part of what David is getting at here in his prayer. But I also think the significance of the prayer goes deeper. 
Look again. Cast me not away from your presence. That's line one. And then his point is restated in line two. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's praying the the same thing in two different ways. Think of it like this. Imagine our nation, if we were being invaded by hordes of Viking marauders, and they were hauling away our families, they were were hauling away our, our women. I might say, do not take my wife away. Don't harm our family like this. Now, while the Vikings are stealing her away, this will very negatively impact our entire family dynamic. However, it does not undo our marriage. We're still married, even though she's stolen away. The bond still stands, although the present reality or enjoyment of it is marred grievously. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We cannot lose Christ, and Christ cannot lose us. So while the relationship between God and the believer is indissoluble, there is a very real sense at the same time in which sin mars, it harms the fellowship that the believer enjoys with his God. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 18, on assurance of faith, teaches this as well. I like how one commentator summarized it. He said, at times, God will discipline us And in order to teach us to never wander from his ways, God our Father may withdraw his Spirit's comforting presence, but he will never withdraw his saving presence. He may, for a time, withdraw the light and smile of his face, but he will never withdraw the affection of his heart. Close quote. Verse 12 reinforces this. Look at verse 12. You see what it says? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not not restore to me my salvation, which has been lost. No, no. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, that's what sin has obscured. That's what David's sin has obscured. Salvation's sweetness and beauty and splendor and joy. A Christian may for a time, maybe even a long season, lose the pleasure, the sweetness, the delight of the Christian life. Our ongoing besetting sins that we continue to entertain may indeed mar and obscure and harm our fellowship with God, our communion with God, but they never, that Christian never loses their possession of that life in Christ. Yet even that experience, that sense of being at a distance from the loving fellowship of the Lord, even that experience, that sensation is too hard and heavy a burden for David to bear. Do you see that? You get that in the sense of the tone and the urgency of his words. There is an urgency then to his crying for that marred relationship to be restored. Any, any healthy, loving relationship is like that. Any healthy relationship cannot stand for a long time with unresolved, unaddressed conflict. One must be reconciled to his loved one. When there's been a disagreement, when there's been an argument, when there's been a knockdown, drag-out fight, and the, and the air is thick, so thick with tension that you can cut it with a butter knife, until that issue is addressed, everything else seems less pleasant until that fellowship has been restored. And so too David cries to God for a heart that's put right, made clean, so that for him the un bearable burden 
of broken fellowship might be lifted. And the smile of his God and Savior, the sense of that smile of his countenance might be restored again. Is that you, brother or sister? You're a follower of Jesus who's lost the joy in following your Savior. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. But it's been a long time since that first hour. And as you examine yourself with brazen honesty, you feel your spiritual life to be parched, worn, as if in a dry and weary land where there is no water, as the psalmist says. Is that you? While this may not always be the case, it can often be the case in the lives of many Christians, and it is healthy and good for us to take some serious self-examination at times. It may be, it may be that I have little spiritual joy because the truth is I have unconfessed, hidden, unrepentant sin with which I am refusing to deal. Could that be it? Is it drink or gluttony? Is it greed a white-collar thievery, perhaps dishonest gain? Is it prosperity and the esteem of this world that you so desperately crave? Is it sexual sin or lust? Is it selfish ambition or ego? Is it envy and bitterness toward a fellow believer? And there your sin sits, festering in your heart, unchallenged, poisoning you. In your soul, you're not where you ought to be and you're not where you want to be. And if that is you, dear friend, if that is you, please know that there is a way out of this dry and weary place and there is a way home. And David shows it to us. Flee to God for mercy, verses 1 and 2. Admit and own your sin in its fullness, verses 3 to 6. And trust in the God who promises to provide pardon for sin who provides a sacrifice to cleanse. Trust in Christ alone, whose blood can wash you and make you clean, verses 7, 8, and 9. And then as you have run to God for pardon and forgiveness, believer, and he stands more ready, more than ready to dispense lavishly with his forgiveness. Having fled to him, go on to deal with the root of the matter. Praise the God of abounding grace who has forgiven this poor wretch. God has been merciful to me, a sinner. Praise him for it. And now, having received that glorious pardon, O Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. That's it. That's the way back from the spiritual wasteland. No special plan or program. No need for an emotionally moving experience, though it very well may be emotional. But you and I simply need to be honest and blunt with the Lord, our maker, to repent and seek his mercy so that he might give you a clean heart. That's the first thing, the inward focus of David's prayer, the inward focus. Which brings us then to verses 13, 14, and 15. Now the outward focus. Create in me a clean heart. Then verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. See what happens when God comes and cleans hearts and changes people? 
we can't help but speak about our saving God and his unfathomable goodness. The joy of salvation has returned here to the psalmist. Now, please notice, this is not David trying to bargain with God. How often do we hear the cliche story, and we see it depicted in Hollywood all the time? A man, a woman, they're in a desperate situation. He's about to die, and so he starts to pray, and he he strikes a bargain with God. If, If you spare me, Lord, I'll become a preacher. If you protect me, I vow I'll go into missions. Incidentally, as one pastor pointed out, that's exactly what Martin Luther did. He's walking through the torrential lightning storm. A lightning bolt strikes right next to him. Terrifying thunderclap. He falls to the ground and he calls out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. That's not what's happening here. Not with David. He's saying, rather, if I can, if I can paraphrase it this way, I want the Lord to reshape me. And as he does, I vow to live a life of zeal, of enthusiastic devotion, of faithfulness and piety toward him. If God will work in me, I want to be his cheerful, glad disciple, his servant. And I want to be public about it. I don't want to keep the tales of his goodness to myself. I will praise him and proclaim him to all. I like how one man puts it. Here's the great mark of a transformed heart. Evangelism only becomes an onerous duty when the gospel itself loses its sweetness and luster in the heart. Worship is only a burden when the silver of the gospel has become tarnished and dull. But when the Lord makes it shine again, you will be unable, like David, to do anything other than tell all about your wonderful Savior And to delight to sing his praise. So that's the outward focus. There's an inward focus to David's prayer. There's an outward focus to David's prayer. And then thirdly and lastly, there's a a Godward focus. Verses 16 to 19. David is concerned that a clean heart, a working of purity in his soul, will positively impact his worship and the worship of God's people. See it there, starting at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the adult Sunday school class on the Psalms, that God-honoring worship is not merely a matter of the right forms. There's more to right worship than merely correct performance. There's more to right worship than merely following precisely the order of instructions. But earnestness and sincerity of the worshiper. A lively faith and piety matter greatly to God. David is saying, if I've sinned against God, and if the heart isn't right, without a broken and contrite heart, then what use is this outward performance of mine? And as he prays with God to look on him with mercy and to restore him and to renew him, notice that he comes broken and contrite, not put together first, not, not first having dealt with all of his problems, 
cleaning up his life, forsaking all his sin, getting all this stuff together and sorted out. Clean up your act first and then come to Jesus. No, no. He comes to God as the pathetic sinner and the pathetic mess that he is. And he says, such sacrifices, O God, you will not despise. This is the message of grace to a sinful soul. You're desperate and you're flailing. You're contrite and heartbroken by your own wickedness. Well, come. Come with all your sin and all your mess. Come in all your neediness. There is grace for you in Christ. Don't wait. Don't delay another moment. Come and welcome in Christ Jesus. Plenteous grace in thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. More than all in thee I find. Jesus, lover of my soul. And notice too, finally, at the end, as David seeks God's restoration, he is deeply concerned that not only does he worship correctly and rightly personally, he wants to be sure that God's people worship rightly corporately. You see that? Together as a people, God-honoring worship matters, and it is the result of transformed hearts. What does he say there? Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. He's praying for the people of God. He's praying symbolically, of course, using that imagery of the Temple Mount, the space of worship in the capital city of Israel in Jerusalem. He's saying, build it up, Lord. Do good to Zion. Do good to their souls. Do good to their spirits. Hearts are renewed. Souls are captivated but with a holy zeal and a spirit wrought sincerity. And thus, then the outward forms of worship will be acceptable. Then the liturgy, if you like, will be right. Do that good work in the hearts of Zion, O God. And as you do, the city of Jerusalem, where the worship of our great God takes place, we built up and strengthened and beautified. As King David is praying that his newfound joy and his godly piety, his soul enthusiasm for this Great and glorious God will be infectious. You've heard of trickle-down economics? Well, this is trickle-down devotion, if you like. He wants it to catch on and for a biblical revival to sweep through the city. There's a prayer. There's a desire. There's an evidence that a heart has been captured by the grace of God. When we begin to desire that God would visit his people with the same renewal with which he has visited us. I want all the church, I want all my brothers and sisters to know God's wondrous grace the way I've come to know it. As God has dealt with me, I want him to deal likewise in his plenteous mercy and grace with all of his people. There's a way we can pray for one another and for all of God's church. I wonder if you take that home and pray that this week. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. O oh God, restore the walls of Jerusalem. Revive your church. No man-made program can manufacture it. Only you can do it, God. Give your people broken and contrite hearts. And when you do, verse 19, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. He's saying that the full gamut of sincere worship, of right worship, full and flourishing will take place. The full range of glad worship, all the liturgical ordinances, even the offering of bulls. 
If you know the Levitical system and you know about all the sacrifices, the bulls are the costliest of all the livestock. They were used as a sacrifice for a sin offering or a burnt offering which would express wholehearted devotion or commitment to God. David is saying, these things will be offered. Worship will be renewed. Even the costliest, most expensive offering, let's gladly put it on the altar and offer it to our great God. David is saying, look at what a God-cleansed heart does. It will renew and revive the life and the spirituality and the worship of all of us. Biblical worship, God-glorifying worship, the whole range of it full and free and eager and sincere as the people of God give themselves over to the glad service and discipleship of the God who redeemed them. And God will be pleased. And God will be glorified. Oh, friends, let us repent as we ought. May God be pleased to give us clean hearts and renewed souls. And as he does, may we serve our God with newfound joy and fervor and utter submission to his kingship over our lives. Praise God for Psalm 51. Let's pray. Truly, Lord, create in us a clean heart, O God, and restore to us the joy of our salvation. We ask that you would open our lips to sing your praises, that we would proclaim your ways and that sinners would turn to you. Do your good pleasure and build up your people in our souls and all of life for the glory of our Savior's name. Amen.